welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Disha Karnajani. I'm joined today by Anjali Arundhaker, Professor of Feminist Studies and founding co-director of the Center for South Asian Studies at UC Santa Cruz to discuss her book, Abundance, Sexuality's History, out in 2023 from Duke University Press and Orient Box One. How did you come to this project in the first place? Well, firstly, thank you for um, inviting me to this wonderful conversation. I've been a big fan of your work as well. So I look forward to reading more about it as we move forward. And a big Jai Bheem to everybody who's listening, particularly in these times of escalating genocide and violence. I hope we can find refuge somewhere in history. So I began this project in many ways as a response, um, perhaps to the frustration and um, quite frankly, annoyance that I was experiencing about the kind of regurgitation of the show and tell historical mandate that was being imposed on those of us who worked on minoritized histories. Now, I repeatedly say that I say minoritized and not minority, And that may be evident to many of your listeners, but just in case it isn't, minoritized suggests the rendition of devaluation through the action of power, whereas minority suggests a minority in terms of demographics or numerical enumeration. That's tautological, but I think uh, you understand what I mean. So when I say minoritized, how have histories been rendered Um, less valuable, liminal, marginal, etc. So I think um, I I was a bit frustrated, and I have been, I guess, for over two decades about this insistence on showing that we exist. And again, as I say in the introduction to my book, this is not a journey that I have traveled alone. In fact, it's a journey that I have many companions on, And I have learned from our people, folks who work in indigenous studies, histories of slavery, indigeneity, all of whom have basically sort of pushed back against this, um, you know, uh, recover, restore, repair, the kind of mandates of historiographical thinking. So in, in, in many ways, my book was a little bit of a diatribe, one could say, an exegesis, a theorization of how to bypass these hermeneutical demands that are placed on those of us who work on minoritized histories, how to not show and tell, but in fact, uh, tell without showing. I think that was you know, a kind of way into the project for me. Your book, maybe on the face of it, might seem like a history of a particular organization if one didn't <laughs> open the discovers. But what's at stake here, um, as I think readers quickly learn, is less a history as such of the Gomantuk Maratha Samaj, but rather a method. And you're very clear about that. Um, could you tell us a bit about how those two things are connected and how they're distinct? That's a terrific question. And I'm glad you asked it because it's a question that often gets lost in the reading of the, of the book in its current avatar. So I'm a scholar, I'm a literary scholar who works on historical archives. And I've always been interested in staging conversations between fields that I see as still unfortunately segregated. And I use the word segregation with great care. Uh, uh, area studies, South Asian studies, uh, histories of the global South, and queer sexuality trans studies. While they share a relationship um, to minoritization, their orientation to each other, for the most part, has been oppositional, um, not very friendly. Um, So I wanted to, in some ways, find a suture and I and in my first book, the archive, the idea of the archive was the suture that brought these two field formations together. And and in that book and here, I was very interested in thinking about um, area or region, not as exemplar, but rather as epistemology. And this is, of course, an argument that I have made many times over, and also made it with my dear colleague and comrade. Gita Patel in the special issue we did on um, geopolitics and area studies um, for uh, GLQ, which is the major journal in in sexuality studies. So the idea was, um, you know, how do we think about a place, a community, uh, a a time 
not as an exemplar of a particular question, but rather as an epistemology of how to ask that question. So as I say in my introduction, I grew up in the raucous and body of Iran's of the Gomantak Maratha Samaj, but this is not a history of them or about them. It is a history that comes through them, right? So it's an epistemology which allows me to ask and unmoor my own historical habits. So I feel like that's an invitation for readers to think anew about the settled habits through which we approach historical objects. And for me, in many ways, um, I would say if you ask me what I work on, I would say I'm interested in the archival grammar of our historical habits. And in many ways, uh, this book allowed me to meditate on the archival grammar, the kind of arrangement of how we arrive at a knowledge economy more than anything else I've done before. You write about the archive that you work with and through as abundant. And you also very early on in, in, in your book refer to the prioritization of loss rather than something like abundance in theorizations of sexuality as a kind of orthodoxy that you are writing against. Um, how did that orthodoxy come about and how does it operate in the fields in which you work? Well, again, this goes back to the earlier question you asked. Um, loss as an orthodoxy is not necessarily one that I want to dismiss. I think I want to be very clear here in case um, there is some misreading, not on your part so much, but perhaps on people who are listening and are yet to enter the, the pages of the book, as it were, is that this book is not uh, a refusal of loss. It is not um, a mandate against loss. It is not a disavowal of loss, right? It is rather asking, what if loss is the ordinary condition of subalternity? And what happens if we find um, a relationship of difference to that origin story. Um, so in many ways, when I say orthodoxy, I'm interested in thinking about how did we arrive here? How did we arrive at this origin story of loss as being the condition of possibility through which we thread our futures? Um, and again, uh, the, there is a real connection with my first project and the book that I'm about to start on histories of indenture and sexuality in Mauritius. It's about thinking about why economies of devaluation, something that we can return to anon, uh, arrive as places of possibility for histories of minoritization. What that means is, why do we always begin with erasure? Why do we always begin with, um, with a sideline of disappearance when we speak about histories of minoritization? Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, that seems like a very counterintuitive point, of course there's loss. Archives are lost, people are lost. We are witnessing this right now. And in fact, thinking about what is going on in Palestine is a great way to imagine the relationship of this book. In many ways, there is a surfeit of evidence around us right now about the genocide. There is no doubt, or there should not be no any doubt, I would say, in anyone's mind about what is going on. And yet there is a series of refusals. Right. So we have learned that the historical grammar that we know of visibility, presence, evidence is not working. Something is awry. Um, and in many ways, that's what I'm interested in. Right. I'm interested in what is it that we choose not to see, even as it exists. So when I say abundance, um, you know, as I, I as I said in the book, it's not um, a call to a kind of plenitude of things. It's rather a call. It's an epistemology of how do you think about reading practices as practices that allow us to thread multiple presents at the same time, right? So I think that's what I mean about orthodoxy. It has to do with how do we walk the path from the show and tell without evidence, you cannot have rights and representation. And yet how do we ask for rights and representation without ceding ground to this call for fixed evidentiary forms. And again, the most obvious place is in the fields of caste and sexuality. The recent debates around the caste census in India are an exemplar of why the datification of caste is both a place of possibility and the place of peril. Equally, uh, the debates around the same-sex marriage, uh, which was of course turned down 
um, in the courts recently is also about what is the evidence of normativity that we need in order to install a particular practice. But of course, most people who are queer or trans do not want to fold themselves back into a binary, but the state demands that we do. Similarly, caste is both malleable, disposable, and also uh, weighs very differently across regions in South Asia. But to think about that malleability is both a strength and weakness. It furthers um, anti-caste efforts to prove that caste is not an ontological form, but it also weakens the force of, of anti-caste oppression when we want to call upon it as a place of reform, right? So you can see it's an agon. And I wanted to dwell on that agon less as a place of paralysis, but as a place of abundance, that this agon can be generative. It can allow us <clears throat> to think as the Samaj people did in these creative and canny ways. To return to the question of geopolitics that you brought up, because the Samaj existed between and, and across the border between what were then the British and Portuguese empires on the Indian subcontinent, and today it has its archives, as you write, in Mumbai and Punji, you refer to this as a South-South history in some ways, drawing Latin America and South Asia in through the connections between these colonial regimes and regions. Could you say more about how this features in your book and how geopolitics as something that you define as where we write from figures in your argument? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the <clears throat> questions that I've been preoccupied with for quite some time now is how to think about the geohistory of terms. So if you take a term like... Um, Sexuality, gender, caste. Uh, caste is a global concept, as we know. I live in California, where we recently tried to pass a statewide caste discrimination bill, which was turned down by the governor, but received enormous support. So we know caste is a geohistorical form. Um, so I wanted to um, find a way to theorize the geohistories of the terms I was working with but also consider that geohistory within another form that is recursive. Uh, recursivity is a term that I'm very interested in and it would be the return of certain historical habits. Um, so for example, one of the standard um, kind of historical habits around geopolitics slash geohistory is we know asymmetry exists, so let's acknowledge it, but it will continue. Right. So I can say, well, I write on the global south. I work in Marathi, Kokani, Canada, and I know most of the people listening to me won't know it. Uh, but that's the asymmetry. We acknowledge it and move on. Right. So we are at that that place right now. Say a couple of decades ago, we would not acknowledge the asymmetry. Now we are. So the recursive habits have changed. Uh, we now acknowledge the asymmetry, but the asymmetries have not changed. So for me, I was sort of, you know, so I never provide any glossaries for any terms. I refuse to do that, neither in a talk nor in the book. Do the work, right? So we do the work all the time of translation, which is not just linguistic, but is also epistemological. So for me, again, as I, as I started our conversation by saying this is a little bit of a diatribe, it is a diatribe, again, not in a politics of refusal. I don't believe in refusal. I believe in the politics of engagement but how to engage with these recursive habits, which bring up asymmetries simply to fold them back into our ordinary forms of thinking. So the invocation of South-South, again, was not a way to say, aha, this will then respond to that asymmetry by staging a conversation from within rather than without, but it was more to speak to the work of comparative empires, which again, for those of us who work in South Asia, um, as many of us know as historical fact that Goa was colonized by the Portuguese and was not liberated till 1961, Goa as a historical form and Portuguese India as a historical form falls away, as does French colonialism, Dutch colonialism, etc. So the idea of the South-South was to gesture one to a conversation that we can stage from within that allows us, again, to think epistemologically about the historical to think about comparative empires, to think about different regimes of, of learning. So when I started doing work on this project, I had to apprentice myself to an entirely new 
economy of archival forms because the Portuguese empire was radically different from the British, right? They were not invested in kind of, you know, rule by remote control, the access to uh, categories of archival accumulation were radically different. So the South side was a way of paying attention to asymmetry, paying attention to comparative thinking, paying attention to the elisions within our own historical habits, and to find a conversation that would allow us to bring all of those together, not necessarily towards liberatory forms, right? The story of the Samaj um, that I tell is not a story that offers any redemptive sanctuary. It is a story rather that requires us to think about why we desire a certain kind of redemptive historical form in order to forge histories of caste oppression and queer possibility. Right. So this is, as I say in the book, this is not a Samaj that's interested in anyone else's uplift. Uh, they do not align with other uh, Bahujan groups. They do not align with Dalit struggles, but yet they are a story of possibility and why the story needs to be told. So I think that's when I say South, South, I want to be, you know, and I think there are many, many comrades, for example, in South Africa, particularly where this gesture has really taken uh, heart. But we also want to infuse a note of caution, um, you know, as Gayatri Spivak did many years ago, that multilinguality doesn't necessarily mean non-hegemony, right? You could learn multilingual forms, but if they continue to be metropolitan forms, then hegemony continues. If I only learn Hindi and Marathi and not Kokani, then that is still a, a hegemonic learning, which doesn't make South-South a better place. So the idea is really to complicate continuously uh, and that's the abundance, right? So, And the story that you lay out for us in the book, I think takes up many of these questions through these moments of extraordinary specificity. So there are three episodes that really animate your book. And so in the interest of not spoiling some pretty important twists and turns, I will call them first, the attack, second, the evil ladies, and lastly, 1947. There is a lot of sex over there somewhere waiting for your readers to find. There absolutely is. Um, at stake throughout the book is the place of the event and mm -hmm. its uses and abuses and, and overturnings. And so taking, as these, taking these three episodes as these points of departure, can you tell us how over the course of many years of working with this material, how you arrived at the structure for the book and approaching these questions that we began with through these three moments of extraordinary specificity? So for me, this question is one that I continue to think about. Um, and it's the question of how do you decide what story, what exemplar, what archival trace can bear the burden of representation for the story you want to tell? Now, there are many people I owe uh, a kind of debt, intellectual debt too, but the first person, of course, is my father. My father, Ramakant Arundekar, who passed away in 2018, was a poet, mathematician, and also a very active member of the Samaj. Baba was the first person to, to ask me to consider what it means uh, to think about exemplars. Whenever I would write as a child, he would uh, draw a line through the uh, through the words and ask me, Marathi, what is at stake for you to say this? Which is not an erasure of what I said, but simply an invitation to say, why do you need to say what you need to say? Um, and as I, you know, hopefully matured intellectually, I, I thought about that quite often because as a literary scholar, I thought about exemplars as figurations, as continuously doing and undoing the work of representation. As someone who worked in historical archives, um, and thanks to feminist historians, I understood that work in a different way, which is that there was a kind of truth claim that the figuration carried, which was also worth thinking about. And then more recently, of course, the work of, of my dear teacher and friend, Lauren Balant, who, of course, has talked a lot about the idea of the event, um, and, of course, earlier precursors like Shahid, Shahid Amin, etc. So there's a long you know, litany of people I can I can think about. But I think for me, my father's invitation um, was always one that was a reminder, not about giving up the lyricism of the moment, 
but staying with it to think about how that lyricism could become an invitation to think with other people. So in many ways, when I was writing, I also wanted to find a way to manage the tenor and the tone of the archives I was working with. Um, the Samaj archives are funny. They're, they're raucous, they are hilarious, they are absurd, they are profound. And in some ways, that's how I imagine and hope my life is as well. So I wanted to translate the kind of uh, multi-vocality of the archives in the ways in which I wrote as well. So um, if any of your uh, listeners, um, you know, has the time to wade through the text, I would invite you to look at my footnotes because my footnotes, they're endnotes. I worked very hard to make them endnotes, are a long sort of conversations with citational practices, but also with my reader giving them an opportunity to think about how I chose the examples, why I chose them, and what the repetition of an example does. So in many ways, there were different sort of, you know, avenues within which I came. But the main question is, how do you decide how something will bear the burden of representation? What becomes an event? How do you know that something will, will carry the story forward? And I wanted to emphasize the idea of the story because, of course, uh, as I said, feminist historiography has done a lot to remind us of that. But in this case, because the Samaj archives are wrapped up in a dialectic of, of truth and fiction, this relationship uh, was even more uh, pressing for me. So I think that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But, but it was, it took a very, very long time. This book is very short and compressed because I'm primarily a theorist. So it doesn't provide the kind of, you know, historical detail perhaps that more people would have liked. But I wanted to use the exemplar as a compressed uh, kind of node, which would invite you to enter it through all of these different ways. One of the exemplars that you talk about brings up the idea of a strategic drama. Um, which when I was reading it echoed for me, a concept from someone you you cite, Gaither Spivak, and her body of work, um, specifically the notion of strategic essentialism. But importantly, in your work, the drama plays with this idea of strategy. And so rather than a claim to a collectivity in public based on the so-called fact of essential sameness, your strategy produces a natak or a drama with a very different aim. Yours is oriented around making visible and juridically legible the operation of caste. Could you say a bit more then about this strategy that's at work in your book and through the people that you write about? Because in many ways, the episode about the drama is an extremely inventive moment of political theorization. And so I wanted to ask you about the role of these strategies because you write on the one hand about strategies for redress and representation, and on the other hand, a strategy of what you call non-veracity. And so the, the strategy question there was really alive for me. I, I wondered if you could say more about that. So for me, the joy of our conversation today is that you're rendering <clears throat> the story of the book in a way that exceeds perhaps even what I thought about, which is precisely the point, right? So I'm grateful for, for that. Now, in terms of strategy, I think one of the, the key points I was trying to work out was what are the historical habits of recognition through which we mine a possibility of a future? And when I what I what I mean by um, habits of recognition is how do we know that something exists as a historical present? Um, and in many ways, um, the book's archives um, talk about this through the different exemplars. But let me give you a better and more clarifying uh, uh, exemplar that will be uh, that will perhaps uh, allow you to see the work of of the book in itself. So the cover of the book, for those of your listeners who who get a chance to see it, has an image from an, a Samaj Sudharak, which is the journal that the Samaj community published and continues to publish till today. Today it's called Gomanth Sharda. So the cover is a 1940 image of a woman who is very, very seductively, coyly, invitingly looking at the camera. And um, it's also an image that looks slightly askance, meaning she's not looking directly at the camera. Now, 
the Samaj Sudharaks of the 1940s had a lot of these images. So when I published the book, which is quite recent, I got a lot of emails from very, very ardent, wonderful South Asian film historians who are, you know, fantastic people who wrote to me and said, is she X? Someone else said to me, you know, I've seen that picture before. Tell me who that person is. And someone else wrote to me and said, is she your mom? Because she sort of kind of looks like my mother. And I was really uh, sort of um, not intrigued. I was in some ways um, deeply grateful for those messages because it confirmed my historical intuition, which was that even though I had written this book, which was basically saying, don't demand veracity in the ways in which we know people who I love and people who I think are extraordinarily smart out of excitement wrote to me and said, who is this person? Now, in my book, in one of the when I talk about these images, I talk about the fact that as a fake historian, I did do due diligence and try to find out who these women were. But for some reason and for again, for reasons that may have been strategic in the ways in which you ask, the Samaj does not give the names of the women on the cover, but they all approximate the visual stylizations of the period. And when I was doing research, I would ask people in our community, especially elders, you know, who is this person? And I remember one of the people, and I mentioned this in one of an endnotes, said, you know, we don't really know who she is, but she looks very familiar. Isn't that the point? And I think that was the point in which I realized that's the strategy of the project, which is, I know that I exist. We know that this is everywhere and nowhere, right? But how do we enter into that landscape of recognition without ceding ground to the demand for a kind of stable veracity? So this, this uh, response that I got from all of these people saying, who is this person, was precisely the point, right? So I'm actually writing um, a paper, uh, an essay right now on the afterlives of the book, which is called A Family Interlude. And I asked all of my friends who read the book, and I invite you to do the same, to take a picture with the cover of the book. And the picture should emblify, uh, emblematize, sorry, your relationship to that image. So a lot of people send me images where they're trying to copy the beautiful image. Others did something else. And part of it was, was an invitation for them to say, like, tell me what you think. So in many ways, that's the strategy of the book is to say, how do you get drawn in and yet refuse the stability of the origin story, which is she is my mother. She is this person. She is that person. And that's a very, very hard habit to break, because in many ways, um, you know, as you may have noticed, the primary sources, I have a piece about my mother and my father, right, instead of the kind of conventional way in which those of us who work in historical archives, you know, note the archives where we worked it, those appear in the secondary sources. But I also did that precisely to foreground the strategy of the book, is that this is not necessarily a story about my mother or father. It is a story of them that allows me to think of these questions. That's extremely helpful, I think. And I, I wanted to return also to the archive that you're talking about to follow up on some of the things that you said, especially because the terms that come up in your book um, draw from a number of different conversations, some of which you've you just laid out. I wanted to ask you about one in particular. Um, you write often that the archive is the value form of our history of the present. That's a quote from your book. You also refer to the phenomenon at work in this archive and in the life worlds that it describes, chronicles, et cetera, as an economy. Value form, economy, you're, you're drawing from an explicitly Marxist vocabulary to describe and analyze what I understood to be circulation and exchange in many ways. Early in your book, you sort of flag psychoanalysis as a dominant and perhaps not entirely applicable mode through which to approach sexuality in this case. And so I wondered, is the sort of opposition between Marxism and psychoanalysis as modes of understanding here part of that story? And if not, or even if so, could you tell us a, a bit more about this language of political economy 
that appears again and again in your book in, in I think really generative ways. So first, I would say a small clarification. Um, I'm not saying that psychoanalysis and Marxism um, or Marxist theory, which I'm not actually doing, but I'm happy to say why I'm not doing it as well, even though, of course, it's very much invested. Again, the term is important in the in the kind of epistemological capital that these regimes offer. What I was trying to say is not that psychoanalysis is, is, is not useful, in fact, I was trained in psychoanalysis myself. In fact, I use terms like scene, symptom, disavowal. What I was trying to flag was that the foregrounding of psychoanalysis as method allows other intellectual grammars to fall away. So one of the, the kind of um, claims of the book is how and why is an archive like the Gomantak Marta Samaj not been investigated, even though it's it's available, accessible, and easily open. And this is counterintuitive in many ways because most of us who work in South Asia have a terrible time, especially when you work in regional archives, right? Things are falling apart, uh, access is awful, um, you know, it's very hard to get to places. So I was interested in why even though this archive was so eminently available and even though its members were so eminently known, why the archive was not being read. So the economy of value was about the materiality and epistemology of caste and sexuality that was congealed in these archives that created a problem for the historicization of both sexuality and caste, right? So in some ways it is a merging of both, uh, you know, I would say perhaps Marxist theory or psychoanalytical theory, but also feminist theory, uh, you know, so in many ways I, I have stayed away from um, being um, faithful to one historical method or the other, precisely because I want to speak to the leakage of those forms in these archives, right? So, so the value form here is the archive because the value form of the archive is what guarantees historical futures. And I wanted to interrupt the economy of value through which that archival form became available for consumption, dissemination, reparation, reproduction, etc. So that was the main, um, uh, you know, main intent. So this is not an, not at all about, um, you know, uh, refusing psychoanalysis, but rather to say there are so many vocabularies that sit within our intellectual uh, landscapes, and yet we recover selectively. So what happens if all of these sit? And the fact that I don't go after psychoanalysis or don't go after queer people or don't go after is precisely the point of the book, right? I keep company. And I think I would say this is the, the most unsolicited advice I would give to anyone, both you know, younger scholars and, and, and my peers, is that we lose too much time in creating battlegrounds of innovation. I think what we need more now is practices of intellectual solidarity which we can think with and think alongside. I wanted also then to pick up on something that you query and also practice in your book, which is narration. So you write in your book about a number of moments of narration, one of them being a quote, event of native resistance, something that's very familiar to those of us who write about colonialism and, and decolonization, something that in the telling of it produces a record of an incident that dramatizes the more, quote, ordinary, relentless, and brutal operation of caste humiliation and oppression. And this is a place that you begin to theorize from. And so it got me thinking about this classic question in historical writing about event versus process, break versus continuity. And I wondered when, what is at stake in your book is the problem of narration itself. What was it like for you as a writer to do that narration yourself? And, and I imagine there was a dialogue between the narration you were narrating and your practice. And I, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. That's a tough question in many ways, and one that I don't think I fully um, answered even for myself. And I would say the answer lies in the practice of translation. 
and translation as I have written about elsewhere as a transactive form, but that doesn't um, sort of resort to an economy of exchange. So how do I transact without creating new um, economies of capitalization? And it's in, I write about this in the evil ladies chapter, right? How do you do this, this Bahujan historiography, which uh, culls the power of the Bahu without giving in to the demands of, of, of the hegemonic. So in the narration required a different series of translations, translations that were literal because the, the resources I was working with were in different languages, the compression of materials into, um, into theoretical capsules, as it were. So in one of the chapters, the event that you described, the Halla spreads over pages and pages and pages. So how do you compress the tenor? And tenor is very important of the story into seven lines. That also took almost six months for me to do. It was less, and people, someone said to me um, the other day, I was giving a talk somewhere, and someone said to me, oh, were you, did it take that long because you had to decide which details were important? And I said, no, the, the hard thing was for me was to decide how to create the, the furor of the writing, how to create the, the feeling of the, the writing, the drama, as I say, the natak, right, of the writing in my telling. So the translation was a theoretical translation, as well, which is less about how do I carry terms from here to there, which is a debate I am bored with, but more a, a translation of how terms from within jostle each other, right? So how does a term like caste, for example, which this community is Dalit in, in Karnataka, Bahujan in Maharashtra, in Goa, Dalit, Bahujan, and sometimes not, depending on where you are. So how do you speak about the malleability? Translation is a form of malleability. Now, malleability, not in a kind of contextual relativism way, but malleability in a way that malleability requires different economies of value, right? So for me, the different chapters required a different translation, literal, theoretical, and also spatial of the archives I was working with. This is a very small book. It's only, you know, ab about less than 200 pages, but I spent over 15 years working on these archives, right? So the idea was how do I compress a story so that the story becomes the epistemology rather than a series of details that provide information about a community that very few people know about. So you may leave the book thinking, well, this is a great story, but I don't really know enough about the community. Well, that's an invitation for you to go learn more. There's always more to learn. So I think translation um, becomes the kind of vehicle for narration and for me in many different ways. You begin your book with a frustration. Um, and it and for the reader, it really helps us kind of get get ready for the problem that you're about to set out. And you describe this frustration as about the weaving together of the elements that we've been talking about, geopolitics, sexuality, region, and approaching them with the specificity of this region as a site for thinking and the Samadra's archives as generative of a method. And you mark that this may be for some too diffuse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have advice for early career scholars or anyone really who might want to write or teach in this way who share this frustration uh, you know on the note of intellectual solidarity that you that you brought up how might we kind of join you in in thinking this way i have no advice i only have cautionary notes but i i don't think i have advice because i think um the beauty of this project for me less about how it's consumed and more about why i remain invested in its questions <clears throat> is that it illuminated for me how the questions we ask radically change depending on what we're working on. So in many ways, my first book um, was very different. It was about the impasse between presence and absence that those of us who work in archives engage with. This book almost required me to unmoor myself from the arguments that I made in the first book and to say, what if you know archival forms anticipate the economies of profit and pleasure that they will enter into 
as archival and historical forms. So the advice around diffusion I would give is less about um, how to do it, but, but more about uh, thinking about uh, your work as an attenuation of a particular historical form that you're invested in engaging with. And what do I mean by attenuation? Meaning thinking about uh, the fact that as historians or literary scholars, we arrive in media stress, meaning what the action is already going on and we arrive to engage with the action. So our interventions are not about reinventing the Natak, the show must go on, right? But rather to think about how we attenuate the forms in which the Natak has been received, staged and reviewed. So, um, so my frustration about uh, that this might be seen to diffuse was a direct invitation again to people who think about folks who work in South Asia as working in South Asia and not working in epistemology, right? So, so the diffusion was less about why, again, to go back to my first point of why we demand more evidence from folks who work in the global South, for example, rather than for those who work in European or US or Canadian histories, right? That there is, unless of course you're working in indigenous histories, et cetera. We demand a certain level of, of evidentiary content in order to make the argument palpable. And so the, the, the remark about diffusion was that this is not considered theoretical because it is from elsewhere and we need to learn more about the elsewhere before we can understand its theoretical mandate. Here, I wanted to reorder that and say, there is the theoretical mandate is only possible if we engage with these materials. A great example to think about this, again, is from the work of Gayatri Spivak's Can the Subaltern Speak essay, which of course was revised. I have taught the essay in all its multiple iterations and students, even South Asian students, skip over the Sati debates. Right, They tend to think about that as too much local information, and that's not theory. But in fact, if you read the essay, that's where most of the critical work of the essay is done. So again, it's not, a, remember I asked you to think about asymmetry and recursive habits of reading. So in many ways, I would say, you know, to all my younger scholars listening, that how we attenuate the ways in which we congeal our historical forms um, um, is the most important thing. How do we attenuate the epistemic violence that we have inherited? And how can we do that without reproducing the histories that created those violences to begin with, right? That's how epistemic violence works. So by refusing to tell, I'm showing you what you need to think about. And that's a difficult place of possibility, but that's the abundance, right? Um, and I think that's where I am always still more a literary scholar than a historian because I'm invested in, in the kind of landscape of readings that make uh, visibility possible. And to return to something you just mentioned, which is the classroom for the site for a lot of this thinking, um, how do you hope we might teach your book in classes on South Asia, on sexuality, on the archive, a historical methods class, a literary studies class? How, how do you hope students might take this up? I think all of the above. I learned from, from when my first book came out, I learned that it is impossible to anticipate how it will travel. So for example, uh, a few years ago, before the pandemic, I got an invitation from historians who were military historians who worked on Western military history of the West or military West or something like that. I can't even remember. It was so odd. And they had read my first book and said, oh, we really want you to come talk to us. It was at West Point. Now I remember. And I remember thinking, this is very strange. And then realizing that what is it about this odd little book that resonated for someone who's working on histories of militarization um, and histories of military um, sort of combat, literally, in, in the U.S., um, and realized that that was the point of the book, was that it should not be locked into a particular region or uh, area of expertise. So having said that, I would hope that my book resonates, obviously, for people who work in South Asia, 
and not just South Asia in terms of history, but South Asia in terms of people who are invested in caste oppression, who are invested in queer trans rights, who are invested in um, legal representation and invested in, in a survival. I mean, this book, more than anything else for me, is a history of a community's survival amidst uh, the onslaught of, of oppression. And it's a joyful, abundant history because it does not allow you to sit inside of any particular form for too long and requires you to constantly be on the move, right? So in many ways, I feel like depending on what you're interested in, one can mobilize the book for anything, even things that I never intended it for. And that's part of the point. So I would say, but I, I fear, unfortunately, though, that this book perhaps may not translate to undergraduates as much as I would have liked, though I have had many um, undergraduates write to me and uh, who are reading the, the parts of the book in their senior seminars. I think its compression may require a little bit more work, but perhaps that's, you know, a place of possibility as well. So you set up the stakes of in particular, the desire for archival exemplarity for histories of sexuality in South Asia as being explicitly political and legal, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as particularly mm -hmm. India's history is mobilized against many lives and communities, including Dalit, Muslim, queer, mm -hmm. and trans lives. So I'll, I'll quote you, quote, the future of, pardon me, the feature of a good archival exemplar is that it will tell us a story, preferably a compelling story, a story worthy of repetition and citation. Um, could you say more about how you thought through the stakes of that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a question that for good or bad, um, all of us are thinking about now because uh, history writing has become a place of invention, both good and bad in the current authoritarian uh, landscape of India, right? So every day, we have new origin stories for why Muslims belong or don't belong. We have the erasures of periods of history completely from textbooks. We also have aspirational stories of alliance between communities in order to create electoral representation. So I think more than any other place in the world, I think South Asia and particularly India has become a battleground for history making. So I think there is no way to engage with the, with the history of the present without thinking about the labor, the critical labor that history writing does in the marking of that history of the present. So for me, there was no choice but to enter the fray as it were, particularly because I work in two field formations. Uh, notice I say field formations and not fields or disciplines, which are constantly trying to find new imaginaries of possibility that both guarantee rights and yet refuse the erasure of the subject of rights, right? So that, that's a battleground um, that I think I was super interested in. And in many ways, the, the kind of um, story of the Samaj is an exemplar and epistemology of this question because it both seeds to the demand of rights and representation and yet exceeds it in its survival. Right. So on the one hand, um, you know, I give examples of what the collectivities did, um, you know, in order to gain rights. But we also know that those rights and the ways in which they got there were carefully strategically managed in order to make those rights readable to the state. Right. So in some ways, and I think, again, Nothing I'm saying in this book is extraordinary. And I think that is, for me, the biggest contribution. Everything I say in the book is ordinary, intuitive to most of us who grew up in India. Everything is jugard. We know there is no real. There is real violence. There is real humiliation. There is real loss. There is real death. But we understand that the evidentiary forms of those losses are all jugard. How do I know? I don't know how old my mother really was. We have a birth certificate of sorts, but because her mother was a Devadasi, we have very little understanding. And again, I write about this in my coda, right? So given that we all understand that life is make-believe and not make-believe as fraudulent, but make-believe as a strategy of survival, why are we then attached to these truth regimes that continue to erase us? So I think the invitation again uh, of the book 
our mantra of the book is to ask us to meditate on those forms. The stakes of those of the book is to say, how do we survive, especially today when every single day a Dalit woman is raped or sexually assaulted every other day, Dalit Bahujan people are violated, there is a genocide of Muslims, there is no dearth of atrocities for us to look for, right? So what are the stakes for you and me to do historical work? Can we do historical work simply to prove the longevity of that violence? Yes, absolutely. But we also do historical work to point to the possibility of interruption of that violence. How is that violence corrupted by the very forms that are being erased? I mean, again, nothing I'm saying hasn't been said. We haven't heard. We haven't listened. And we don't know. Dalit historians have been saying that forever. Feminist historians have been saying, look, let us not privilege certain modes of history writing. But yet again, we have turned to the idea of show and tell. Right. So the question again is, why do we need this, especially right now where every, you know, because of social media, et cetera, everything has become about, did you say this at this point? And how can you prove that you're saying something else at another point if you have evidence of something else? Right. So um, so the, the question continues, but the but the stakes are higher right now because uh, we cannot do without rights, right? We cannot not want rights. But on the other hand, how do we forge a relationship to the to the rights discourse in a way that does not disable? And I don't mean that. I mean that in the productive way in which disability rights folks use it. Um, and again, reminder, nothing I'm saying is unusual. This is something that uh, Indigenous studies scholars, Adivasi scholars, caste oppressed scholars, historians of slavery, everyone has been saying this for decades, right? And I'm simply signaling that here's a collectivity that's not inspirational in the way in which we would like because they're not, they're not oppositional. They're capitalists, they are instrumentalists, but yet they are caste oppressed, they are Devadasis and they exist. So what does this messy story tell us? And why do we need to pay attention? Because that is the Jogard of history. And that's how we must continue.